my favorite Presbyterian <laughs> is my mother. <laughs> <laughs> holding it down in the PCA for decades. But my second favorite Presbyterian, brothers and sisters, is Jamar Tisby. I like how you spun that. That was good. That was good. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you weren't ready for my mom, huh? Uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> Don't mess with Mama Adams, man. Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray, taking racial struggles to the throne of grace. United We Pray is a podcast about racial divisions in churches. I'm the host, Isaac Adams, and I'm here with my friend and brother, Jamar Tisby. What's good, brother? Man, it's great to be on the mic. I've been eager to get on your esteemed podcast for a while, so humbled by the invitation. Man, it's good. It's good to have you. And can I can I just say pass the mic? I mean, I'm glad to pass the mic to you. <laughs> Absolutely. We haven't copyrighted it yet. <laughs> uh, good. I don't want Tyler hitting me up for royalties or anything like that. <laughs> Jamar, let me just introduce you briefly and then we'll hop to it. You studied at the University of Notre Dame and Reformed Theological Seminary after that to get your MDiv. You're the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective where you write about race, religion, politics, and culture, which is why I was eager to have you on the show this season as we're praying about about politics, race, and the local church. You're also the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast we were just talking about. You've been featured in outlets such as the Washington Post and CNN, and you're a PhD candidate in history at the University of Mississippi, studying race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. You're the husband of one, the father of two. Uh, I've been reading your uh, book that just dropped, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Uh, brother, I'd say the book is wonderful, but the phrase that might be better is that it's haunting. Yeah. As you talk about race, racism, and the Amer- and American history. And I would just say it's required reading. So just so we're on the same page and so definitions are clear, I want to read how you defined racism on page 16 in your book. Uh, so you say, you ask rather, what do we mean when we talk about racism? Beverly Daniel Tatum provides a shorthand definition. Racism is a system of oppression based on race. You say, notice Tatum's emphasis on systemic oppression. Racism can, op- can operate through impersonal systems and not simply through the malicious words and actions of individuals. Another definition explains racism as prejudice plus power. It is not only personal bigotry towards someone of a different race that constitutes racism. Rather, racism includes the imposition of bigoted ideas on groups of people. So in other words, you would say it's too narrow a view of racism to only limit it to personal animus. That's exactly right. And I think, honestly, that definition that you just read and understanding that is probably one of the most critical foundational uh principles to to unpack if we want to make racial progress in the 21st century. Uh, the problem with many people nationally, but also uh, in the church in particular, is that, like you said, we have this narrow definition of racism to where it constitutes someone using a, a, a racial slur or burning a cross on someone's front yard. And if that's all racism is, then the temptation is to think, A, it's mostly in the past, and those things don't happen with as much frequency now. So then you think, you know, we're, we're pretty much done with racism. Let's move on. Or B, the other problem with it is 
if that's the problem, then the solution is simply grabbing a cup of coffee with someone of a different race or ethnicity or saying some of my best friends are black or whatever it might be. And what I always say is those things are necessary, but not sufficient. It's necessary to have these cross-cultural, uh, cross-racial, cross-ethnic friendships and relationships, but that's not the sum total of what we need to be doing about racism. And we really need to press that truth in in our churches, I think. Right. And, and, and to be clear, you would say that this narrow definition is how evangelicals often limit their definition of racism. Hence the response, hey, I'm not a racist. Precisely, precisely. And, and the folks who really unpack this well, I'm sure y'all have discussed many times, is Michael Emerson and Christian Smith's book, uh, Divided by Faith, because what they show in their sociological study of hundreds of white evangelicals is that the very framework and what they call the cultural toolkit of white evangelicals and the way uh, they interpret Scripture and read the Bible in, in very individualistic terms actually reinforces this idea of an individualistic form of race and racism. So, one's very religious beliefs can lead to counterproductive ideas about how to understand and approach issues of race in the church. You talked about this, uh, I think, a bit before, but what is at stake if we don't recognize the dangers of a racist environment and we only focus on individual racist actions? So I think there is a progression, um, evolution or de-evolution in the way racism manifests itself. Uh, so you go from more overt forms of, of racism to more covert forms, but they're both they're they're equally pernicious, if you will. So it, in the pre-Civil War era, it's very easy to spot racism because you have people of African descent literally in chains. You have scars on their backs from, from whippings and corporal punishment. You have families being separated. All of these things that are literally physically visible. And after the Civil War and Emancipation and the 13th Amendment, you get another form of racial injustice that crops up, this time in the form of Jim Crow segregation. And that's even fairly easy to spot because it looks like separate entrances in the movie theater or signs over water fountains saying for colors only or signs uh, going into town that say uh, black people can't stay there after sundown. And those forms of, of, of racial bigotry are fairly obvious. Now, after the civil rights movement, you get what I would term, again, after uh, Emerson and Smith, a racialized society. So, what they're arguing there is that when you look at any quality of life factor from healthcare to wealth to education to, uh, you know, length of life, maternity, um, related deaths, all of these kinds of things, it falls along racial lines. And we have to be we have to have some explanation for that we have to have some explanation for the continued disparities uh along racial lines and what i say what most historians and sociologists would say is that those are the more contemporary manifestations of racism in our society we have an episode with uh, Michael Emerson where we talk more about that. So for our listeners, you can check out the Emerson, the episode with um, Michael Emerson. And Jamar, as I was reading your book, which I think you do such a good job of making clear that your book is not intended to be a piece, a tool of shame, at least 
uh, ungodly shame, even though if godly grief is produced, well, that's a good thing. We know all grief is not bad grief, but right. uh, you quote Paul saying, you know, you were grieved into repentance, but it's not It's not meant to be one of guilt. Uh, you have solutions suggested at the end, and it's hopeful. As I was reflecting on some of what you wrote, I think one of the dangers of not realizing the racialized society is it's easy then to to then become, to use your language, complicit uh, or uh, be a part of it because um, because if it's only my individual action so long as I'm not this individual agent doing this, then, well, I'm not going to look for it. But if I realize the ways I let this society flourish or promote it, uh, even if it just means I'm not actively stopping it, if I'm just, you know, kind of going with the status quo, you talk about the Birmingham bombing. That's right. And you quote Charles Morgan Jr. talking about uh, this white, uh, young white lawyer. And after the Birmingham bombing, he's reflecting on the event and he said, who did it? Who threw that bomb? Was it a Negro or a white? The answer should be, we all did it. Every last one of us is condemned for the for that crime and the bombing before it and a decade ago. We all did it. Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was such a powerful story to begin with because he captured in the statement you just read the entire idea of Christian complicity with racism. So it's, it's not necessarily the case that throughout every period of American history that most Christians were foaming at the mouth racist. It's not necessarily true that, you know, everyone was a member of the Klan, although that was quite a large organization that enjoyed a popular following. It's not necessarily the case that that everyone was, you know, cheering when lynchings were happening or that uh, people stood staunchly opposed to integration. What happened more often with most Christians is a kind of silence that that inflicted violence on the black freedom struggle. It it was a kind of apathy, uh, even a willful ignorance, a, a, a not wanting to know how bad things were or what the reality was, that actually lent itself to a culture of compromise across the board. And so, as Charles Morgan Jr. says, you know, what he's alluding to is that the failure to confront the small everyday acts of racism led to these egregious acts of racial terrorism, such as the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, in which four young black girls were killed at church. And I think we need to understand that. Uh, so it's not enough simply not to be actively racist. We have to not be passively racist either. And that that means if you're passively racist, you're simply going along with the status quo, which, sorry to break it to you, the status quo is still racially imbalanced, still leads to inequality, marginalization, and oppression. And so what we need, what I'm hoping for as part of the result of reading this book, is actually more people who are actively anti-racist, consciously working against systems, structures, policies, procedures, and practices that would continue to devalue human life along racial and ethnic lines. Before we get to uh, some of the solutions you should, or some of the some of the uh, anti-racist uh, uh, actions you suggest, let me ask you: As we're talking about race, I've heard you say, "quote I used to think race was the most controversial topic among Christians, but it's not. Politics is because <laughs> politics combines race, religion, idolatry, and power." End quote. Jamar, how are all those things wrapped up in politics? 
Well, I'll give you an example. This this goes way back. So one of the uh, historical facts that just stuck with me in this research was that in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of white Anglican men, passed a law saying that baptism would not confer freedom on an enslaved person of African descent, a Native American, or a mixed race person. And that stands out for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is 1667. So it's more than a century before the Declaration of Independence, more than a century before the ratification of the Constitution. Constitution. So these issues of race and religion, they, they, they predate the political entity known as the United States. So you can never say there was a period uh, where this wasn't an issue. You can never say that we can go and make America great as it once was when even before there was something called America, you still had these issues. It stands out for a second reason as well. This was a political decision. So you have the Virginia Assembly, which is a legislative body, uh, passing a law. So, so you have the mix of race, religion, and politics all in that one decision. And in so many cases throughout history, uh, whether whether Plessy v. Ferguson, whether the, the battle to pass Brown v. Board, uh, even the Constitution itself has a fugitive slave clause without ever actually using the word slave. It, it, it's always been the, these issues of race and even religion have always been wrapped up in in political decisions. And so there's no way that we can productively approach issues of race in the present day if we don't look at some of the ways it's expressed itself in politics. So does that mean we should stay away from politics as Christians? <laughs> um, no, we should be wary of partisanship, but that doesn't mean we're not political. So I actually think we need to talk more about politics in the church and not less, especially with the 2020 election cycle really already in full swing in terms of the Democratic primaries. So um, there, I, I have a sense that with this particular president in 2016, there were a lot of church leaders who were just sort of caught by surprise. I mean, a lot of folks never thought he'd win the nomination, let alone the election. And then <laughs> to see this sort of groundswell of support in terms of people who actually voted and identifying as born again or evangelical, casting their vote for this current president, um, that caused major rifts in many churches that were trying to promote, you know, multi-ethnicity and, and, and this idea of racial equality. Uh, those rifts have not healed. If anything, they've become more exacerbated as this administration has has uh, acted uh, over the past two years. And what I am wary of is churches, again, being caught flat-footed around this election cycle. Um, so if folks are not right now at the beginning of 2019 having conversations um, not just about how to think about politics as a Christian, but also how to have conversations as people of faith across political and partisan lines, then I think we risk those rifts between um, not only black and white Christians, but against uh, uh, the rifts between you know Democrats and Republicans and, and other folks. I think we risk those rifts becoming even wider if we're not proactive mm. about it. Mm. So, man, just as we're talking about being in and out of politics, I did an interview with um, uh, Mark Dever uh, that's dropping. It's dropped. By the time this comes out, it'll have already come out. And he was saying, he was suggesting that the best gospel strategy, as he understands it, is to not, as a church, outright, 
outright oppose Democrats or Republicans. So being wary of partisanship that you were just talking about. And he was careful to say, you know, that there are times when you do need to be outright uh, in opposition of a party. And he gave the example of Nazi Germany. Uh, And you and Mark are both historians, so I'm sure you'd appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and he was saying, you know, as Christians, we would be... We would need to be known as in opposition to that party. But I'm just curious, would you agree with that general posture or would you say, no, we are now in the times of civil rights, of bus boycotting, of needing to do that, and we need to oppose a party altogether? Um. So I think we need faithful Christians in both major parties, Republican and Democrats, and my endeavor is not to... Uh, you know, convert Republicans to Democrats or Democrats to Republican. Uh, that's that's not my mission. I th- I do think that um, so in that sense, yeah, we need we need to equip folks and disciple folks to to be savvy about politics without necessarily falling into partisanship, which I would say is like advocating for a certain party or a certain individual candidate. Um, I think the comp- I, I think those decisions are way too complex for uh, something as big and, and as diverse as the church to make a standard uh, about in terms of who to vote for. But that being said, um, historical distance does lend some moral clarity, so that now you know more than half a century after Nazi Germany, it's very clear that that was an evil regime promoting evil practices, and therefore Christians should and should have uh, opposed them publicly. That is not necessarily as clear right now, depending on who you talk to. Um, so I think there are issues that the church can stand united against, but it, it, it would fall more along specific policies, uh, whether whether not supporting specific policies or promoting a vision that um, legislators could then f- formulate policies around in terms of human flourishing. Just to give an example, voting rights. I mean, as citizens of a democracy the the vote is central to what should make our our government work and there have been active cases tried in the courts that show voter suppression which disproportionately falls on people of african descent uh, latinos and latinas as well as the poor and we should not be erecting barriers to the full participation in democracy so it seems to me like something like full voting rights for every eligible citizen should be something the church can promote and something conversely that the church opposes uh, when when suppression is taking place. Hmm. Man, thank you for uh, the specific example. I appreciate that. So we, we've been talking about the past, and you, you're bringing up even a present example. Um, by serving the church, by surveying the church's race, you know, uh, complicity with racism and the American churches, uh, American Christians may feel the weight of their collective failure to consistently confront racism in the church. I'm quoting you here, uh, and you say this should lead to immediate, fierce action to confess this truth and work for justice. Uh, And we hear, you know, I think folks can feel like, okay, I hear that. I want to do that. How can we work for justice individually and systemically? So I know you provide solutions. I'm wondering in your book, but I'm wondering if you can bring some of those to bear here, specific examples. On an ideological level, I think people need to realize that we are still in the midst of a civil rights movement. It has 
peaks and and valleys and i think we're in 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 one of the peaks or at least on on the upward swing of this becoming unless it already is depending on what issues you're looking at a, a a huge national conversation and and so i think folks need to realize that if you look back at the 50s and 60s and say, I would have participated in the civil rights movement, I would have marched with King, I would have boycotted, I would have spoken up. If you say that about 1950s and 60s, but you're not doing that now, then I think it's disingenuous. <laughs> um, I, I know where you would have stood then by where you stand now. And so I want to encourage Christians to be active participants in the ongoing struggle for civil rights, not only for black people, but for any historically marginalized group from women to Native Americans to the poor. And so in the final chapter of the book, which is entitled The Fierce Urgency of Now, just after a phrase in King's I Have a Dream speech, um, in that speech, he's pressing the urgency of the moment that we have to act, that it's already been centuries of oppression and racial injustice, and we can't wait a single another day. And I feel the same way in 2019, especially studying history and knowing the weight, the, 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 the inertia that racism has in our society. So that's a long introduction to get to what are some practical steps that we can do. And I focus more on the systemic and the institutional than the interpersonal. And that is, and that is what I'm curious about, brother, because I think we've talked on the podcast about building relationships. Like we would all, I think everyone would agree, most people, you know what I mean, uh, that agree about having the conversations about about even individual prayer, which we're going to do. Um, but I'm curious for what you'll say now. Yes. So without taking anything away from the importance of those interpersonal steps, I suggest things like my favorite, make Juneteenth a national holiday. And that comes into play for a couple of reasons. Number one, just historically speaking, this is one of the most epochal events in U.S. history. So for centuries, race-based chattel slavery was enshrined in law uh, at the state level, uh, protected e even if not uh, explicitly through federal law. And then we fought the nation's bloodiest war, the Civil War, over the issue of slavery, and don't let anyone tell you differently, it was over slavery. And that war is, is what finally brought race-based chattel slavery to an end, first through the Emancipation Proclamation, then through the 13th Amendment. So it's not just black history, it's U.S. history. So why wouldn't we pause to celebrate and commemorate that annually? And then secondly, Having Juneteenth as a national holiday, these national holidays serve as touch points for the national community, if you will. It helps shape the national consciousness. And so what making Juneteenth a national holiday would do is tell us where we've been. It would make us it would force us to constantly acknowledge every year that that racism and slavery and white supremacy were in fact facts of the past. And we needed to fight a war to get through that manifestation. But it would also tell us where we are. So undoubtedly, there's been immense progress. Um, and, and we should celebrate that. So it would actually be a, a time to pause to celebrate the progress we've made. But then it would also tell us where we still need to go. So it would acknowledge that given this legacy of slavery, segregation, racism, white supremacy, those 
aren't completely eradicated from our society and and that the stride toward freedom continues and it would give us uh, a, an annual day of remembrance to to pause and reflect on solutions and how we can keep moving forward so that's one structural aspect um, and just real briefly money has to factor into this uh, so I don't think we can have any productive conversation about race relations today unless it includes some conversation about money, because at the end of the day, what slavery was, was an exploitative economic system. In a capitalist society, your goal is to maximize your profit and minimize loss. Typically, your biggest expenditure in a budget is for wages and benefits for your employees. So the way around that is you don't pay them. And that's what enslavement was. That's why it remained. That's why in the Mississippi Articles of Secession, it caused slavery the greatest material interest in the world because it was. It had to do with productivity and money. And believe me, the North was implicated as well as the South because the cotton produced in the South went to uh, factories to, be, to produce textiles in the North or be shipped overseas so that other factories could do it at the, at the, uh, as the Industrial Revolution was taking off. So everyone's implicated in the money-making scheme of slavery and what that means at the end of the day is that you have millions of black people who for centuries were never paid for their work and literally built the wealth of this country, everything from draining swamps to building railroads to building colleges and universities, and were never paid for it. And then the war came, civil war came, and all of a sudden folks begrudgingly say, okay, black people, you're free, pull yourself up by your bootstraps when they don't even have boots to begin with. So you exchange one form of slavery for another, and we're still living in, in the effects of that. Well, man, uh, insofar as we're still living in the effects of that, uh, I think that's uh, one reason we continue to pray about these things. So one solution you talk about in your book is prayer. Uh, And you talk about prayer a lot uh, in your book, man, which I I so appreciated. Uh, As you talk about the founding of the black church, which was birthed out of racism, you talk about Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, who in 1972, I'm just going to read this from your book, uh, in 17, (laughs) I just had (laughs) dyslexia. 1792. Right. Uh, 1792. You say, uh, uh, Richard Allen and a fellow black minister, Absalom Jones, entered St. George's to worship. Unknowingly, they took seats reserved for white parishioners and thus violated the segregated seating arrangements. They knelt to pray, but one of the church's white trustees soon interrupted them. Allen recounts the episode in his autobiography. We had not, we had not been long upon our knees before I heard considerable scuffling and low talking. I raised my head up and saw one of the trustees having hold of the, rev- of the rev- Reverend Absalom Jones, pulling him up off his knees and saying, you must get up. You must not kneel here. Mr. Jones replied, wait until prayer is over. The person said, no, you must get up now or I will call for aid and I will force you away. Mr. Jones said, wait until prayer is over and I will get up and trouble you no more. The white trustees insisted that Jones leave immediately. Another trustee came over to help pull back, pull up the, pull up the black worshipers. The prayer ended and Alan recalled, we all went out of the church in the body and they were no more plagued with us in the church. 
I think that's just such a weighty story, man, uh, because I think so often uh, we either treat one another as plagues or we have systems that seem to treat people and people groups as plagues, uh, but we can pray. Uh, you even say that Christians have been mandated to pray that racial and ethnic unity of the church would be manifest, even if imperfectly, in the present. And you talk about praying, and that's because you talk about praying that Jesus' kingdom would come. And we know from Revelation that kingdom is made up of every tribe and tongue, different ethnicities, not just white and black, uh, but uh, different peoples uh, reflecting God's image. So often we say on this podcast, we must do more than prayer, but we cannot do less. So let's pray now. Would you, would you, uh, would you uh, open us in prayer, man? Absolutely. Heavenly Lord, we do thank you for your grace to us in that as your children fight amongst each other for really nonsensical things like the color of our skin, that you have not given up on us, Lord, and we pray for the perseverance and grace not to give up on one another. And God, we pray that this book, The Color of Compromise, and really more broadly looking at history and the way you've worked through history, would give us a better sense of empathy for those who have been left out, for those whose voices have been muted, for those who have been oppressed, and even violently so because of bigotry, because of greed and the pursuit of of wealth, O God. Uh, So we lament in this moment, Lord, the ways that we as your body have failed one another, that we have not wept with those who have wept, that we have not considered the pain of others, uh, our own pain, and taken on those burdens as well. So God, in, in, in these moments of humility, when you show us the mirror of on ourselves about how we've um, addressed issues of race and racism in the church, we pray that you would actually use that to lift up our chins to straighten our backs, to set our faces like flint toward a better future that would lead to equality and the dignity that you've given us as your image bearers. God, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this who is burdened by racism and wants to do something about it, but they're considering the cost and finding that it will be very costly to their reputation, to their job prospects, to their popularity or whatever it might be, that you would give them courage like you gave Joshua uh, as he was about to take over and lead the Israelites into the promised land. Uh, strengthen them, Lord, with the promise that you're with them wherever they will go, and that in whatever mission that you've given them, uh, you will strengthen and empower them to actually complete it. And so we look forward to, with hope, Lord, that that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not even racism and white supremacy in this country are stronger than what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, and we pray in thankfulness for him and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we do pray with thankfulness that because Christ is alive, one day racism will be dead. Father, we thank you for Jamar's work and his voice. Lord, we do pray that you would give him wisdom going forward and him give him strength. Uh, Father, we do pray that we would even see the ways that we uh, may be uh, complicit uh, in seeing, complicit in... Uh, and letting racism abound. Lord, would you in your mercy show us that and declare to us our hidden faults? Father, we do pray uh, that you would give us wisdom as we think about politics and how to have political conversations with one another. 
Father, we don't only pray for wisdom. We pray for boldness. We pray for clarity. And we pray that all of this would be a part of our love. Our love for you, our love for our neighbor. Oh God, give us wisdom, we pray. Give us boldness. The, the boldness Jamar was just speaking of. Father, would you give us courage, we pray. Father, would you give us the, the courage to simply be honest about the truth and the present? Would you give us courage to not simply be dedicated to a platform or a party, uh, to, uh, to, to be willing to say the truth, even if it's against our own party? May we never idolize a position, Lord. And would you, see, would you show us if we have any idolatry of a party, Lord, would you show us that? Father, help us to be people of integrity. Help us to see uh, what we can do, both individually and structurally. Father, we pray for grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brother Jamar, where can folks can find you on Twitter at Jamar Tisby? That's right. You can find me on all, all my social media handles at Jamar Tisby, Instagram, Twitter, also The Witness at thewitnessbcc.com and our podcast at underscore past the mic. And I'll make a quick plug. We are holding our first national conference October. Yes, good. Yes, October 4th and 5th in Chicago. It's The Witness National Conference. The theme is Joy and Justice, continuing the 400-year journey of Black Joy and Justice from 1619 to 2019. So more Details are to come. Follow us on social media, and we hope to see you October 4th and 5th in Chicago for the Witness National Conference. Man, brother, I had that ready to go. Good. I was going <laughs> to ask you about that. Um, Jamar, insofar as because you're talking about what people said, and you talked about this earlier in the episode, but in, in having political conversations, what what is like, if you're, here are my top two guidelines, I mean, not to make you prioritize, but <laughs> sure. here are the guidelines I want to suggest for Christians as they have political conversations. Number one, we have to realize that we are political creatures. Um, many Christians think that being nonpartisan or being Christian and and sort of a, a, above the fray means that they are not therefore than political citizens. You are. There's no such thing as being apolitical. Um, and our our cons- our choices, our our preferences, those even our religious beliefs have political implications. So realizing that simply because we're Christians and citizens of God's kingdom doesn't mean that we are not we are no longer citizens of this earthly kingdom and the United States. So uh, realizing that we are political folks and, and that we have to make political decisions is number one. Then number two, I would I think the tendency for Christian leaders who do address politics is to basically say, we're neither this nor that. And I don't think that actually works out in, in, a, in a bipartisan system, because y- you do cast a vote for one particular political party. And so I think probably the more fruitful line of discussion is, is, is actually to have some policy discussions. And in many of our congregations, we have legislators, we have city council people, we have uh, uh, lawmakers or lawyers or people who uh, are involved in policy and know the ins and outs of it. I would tap that in, in sort of a priesthood of all believers kind of thing 
thing, learn from that expertise, and actually dive into the issues and not just this sort of... Um, you know, what King would call pious trivialities about, well, we're above, you know, this this partisanship that we see in the rest of society. No, you're not. When you go in that voting booth, you're going to vote for one party or the other or an independent, but you're going to make a political decision. And so can we work through these issues sort of morally and ethically speaking, not coming down on a particular policy proposal, but saying, if we hold up these two positions from the two major parties, here's what's at stake. I think those would be difficult, but probably helpful discussions to have. Bro, I appreciate the second conclusion. For our listeners, if you made it to the end, there is a treat for you. <laughs> Jamar, thank you for joining us, brother. Uh, I'm Isaac Adams, the host. You can follow uh, PrayPod at PrayPod on Instagram. We just launched Instagram, nice. so I'm uh, ex- excited about that. We got a lot of good uh, coming out on that, so at PrayPod. Uh, we have a new community manager, Jerry Choi, who's joined the team. She's doing wonderful work for that. Uh, I'm Isaac Adams, the host. Jamar, thank you for joining us, brother. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I have a weakness. Oh, yeah. Everything to God in prayer.